AI isn't going to take your job. Somebody who knows how to use AI will take your job. And I think we just have to think about how do we make sure people don't get left behind? How do we mitigate the negative impacts to people and create a world in which this is a net positive? Welcome to this episode of Video Voyagers, Edge of AI. I'm your host, Audrey. And I'm Richard. So, Rich, how are you doing today? Better than my internet connection, you know? <laughs> and it's crazy to think about how much we rely on the internet now. Like, I walked out and there was chaos out in my house. I work from home like a lot of us, and there was just chaos. My daughter's, like, weeping by the computer, you know, and my little boy's like, you know, and things are blinking and end of the world for 15 minutes. And it's actually very relevant to today's guest and message and everything else that we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, whenever I lose my internet, it feels like I'm missing a limb. Yeah, so we had a really interesting conversation today with Bianca. Yeah, I heard two thirds of it. It was great. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'll be hearing it just first time with the rest of you. You know, I'd be like, wow, that was really insightful. Yeah, but she has a really interesting background. And I only say that slightly because she has a lot of my same background in history and music and all that kind of stuff. But a lot of really cool stuff in her background. If you get a chance to follow her on LinkedIn or whatever else, definitely a good follow. Yeah, I think that background actually, that kind of juxtaposition of the and juxtaposition is the word of the day, because I think I said it at least three times in this episode. But that juxtaposition of having an interest in history and music, and then now she works in tech, gives her a really unique point of view, in my opinion. And I think you can really feel that as well in the types of the implications of AI that we were discussing in this episode. Yeah, and how those implications kind of mirrored historical shifts in the same way, right? Beginning of the internet, beginning of the, you know, even industrial revolution, and even before then, right? Printing press, everything else. I mean, there's just been these big moments of change and being all about, you know, not leaving anybody behind. I think that's pretty important. Yeah. I think she brings a good perspective. So I think you're all going to enjoy this conversation. Yeah, this is a really interesting one. So let's get to it. All righty. Welcome to Video Voyagers, Bianca. I listened to another podcast you were in and you mentioned you're from Canada. Is that correct? Yeah, I am. Born in Vancouver but lived in Montreal and Toronto and then just got really, really cold. And that's why I ended up in LA. I was going to say, do you miss the weather right now? Or are you you sending pictures of like you shoveling sunshine? (laughs) I genuinely love it so much in the warm weather. I I just, people who are listening to this won't be able to see, but I, my family is Indian and both of my parents are from Africa. So I feel like my people were not built for the cold of Canada. <laughs> yeah, but I feel you. Yeah, I'm from Texas. Now I'm in Arizona. And anytime it gets under like 40, I'm like, <laughs> yeah. so. Also, I think we've got a couple of things in common. I mean, a similar position. I'm the customer success here. Both musicians. Is, you used to play guitar. Is that correct? Yeah. Wow. You really did your research. I'm impressed. I used to. I was in the arts. I played guitar. I sang really considered myself quite the creative. Very good. Very good. And also, another thing we have in common, we both graduated with degrees in history. Yes. uh, It makes us incredibly good dinner party guests. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> Are you a history buff? Are you big into history stuff? Or did you just kind of randomly end up in history? I really was. I guess it's somewhat history related. My favorite kind of book to read is a memoir. And I just love understanding people's stories. And I feel like it blends together the almost best of fiction and nonfiction when you're reading the stories. And so I feel like that's been kind of my evolution of loving history. And now all I do is just read memoirs. <laughs> that's awesome. That's really cool. What's your favorite memoir? Memoir. Why is that so hard for me to say? Memoir. <laughs> it is a hard word. You're right. It actually... So I really love comedian memoirs. I'm going to butcher it now. So Born a Crime is Trevor Noah's. Molly Shannon's is incredible. You would never know the crazy upbringing and life and quite tragic life that she had growing up. So her story, her memoir is incredible. What else? I'm trying to think of things that I've read that are not comedian memoirs, but apparently all I read are comedian (laughs) comedian memoirs. I guess I like to laugh. So So we like to open the podcast with kind of a what I like to call a hot take question. And basically, it's the question that's on everybody's minds. And you're in a unique position to answer it both as a CS leader and an advisor for customer success AI product. Is AI going to take all of our jobs? So I like to think about this question and answer it probably in a really frustrating way, which is yes, no, maybe. (laughs) And all of the above. I I really think it is all of those answers. What I do, and you mentioned it briefly, which is working customer success for an influencer marketing platform, which if I told that to somebody 15 years ago, would have sounded absolutely insane. And so I think we should expect it to change the nature of work. We should expect it to change certain jobs. But I think we also underestimate what society and the workforce has already done in the past. And I am a history buff. So, you know, look at the industrial revolution, the creation of the internet, the creation of the smartphone. I am of probably the last generation that remembers being kid and getting your first computer and having a computer room and having a class in school that was computer class where you learned how to use a computer and how far we've come and how much has changed in the workforce through the evolution of that technology. Nobody would say now we should not have computers, right? Nobody would say that. And that's what we're saying about AI in some context that was going to upend the workforce. I listened to another podcast, Scott Galloway and Kara Swisher. I'm a big Kara Swisher fan. And Scott has said probably I've heard him say it like a hundred times. So I'm going to steal it, which is AI isn't going to take your job. Somebody who knows how to use AI will take your job. And I think we just have to think about how do we make sure people don't get left behind? How do we mitigate the negative impacts to people and create a world in which this is a net positive? I remember computer class and uh, Mavis speaking, teaching teach typing. typing. <laughs> I was thinking about that too. Yes. Yep. On a, on a 486 where it would from 25 to press a turbo button and it would go 33 megahertz and stuff would start smoking in the back. Yeah, it was a it was fun times. You'd be like, okay, I'm going to turn off the internet now so that I can make a phone call. 
<laughs> or if you didn't, you got that. Yeah. Yeah. The crazy or you sound. turn off the internet so that you wouldn't be charged when you went to the bathroom because you'd be charged for the internet during that time. You didn't want to waste internet. And I think we just have such short memories of what was really not that long ago and how it really turned world and everyday life and really the workforce upside down. But we would never say now, maybe some people would, but we would never say that was a net negative to have computers, to have the industrial revolution. And it's an evolution of that. It's a kind of evolution of people consistently reaching for more. So you talk about kind of the evolution of things. When you first heard about kind of the huge, started getting involved in the huge innovations and strides in, in AI, chat GPT and the like, right? And like the company that I think you're an advisor for, right? What was your reaction as like a content creator? Because you've created content and stuff as well. What was your reaction on as a content creator to all this AI stuff that you were saying? Yeah, I think my first reaction was to think about my own experience and the evolution of these types of technologies and how it has affected my teams and my customers and my tech staff. So when I used ChatGPT for the first time, like many people, I was blown away testing it out. But I was also immediately brought back to a job I had building enterprise chatbots for customers like Nike and Live Nation and big enterprise customers who we built pretty incredible chatbots for incredible for the time. And a lot of it was built around customer service deflection. And now when I look back on it, it was only in 2017, 2018. When I look back on that, they weren't chatbots. They were automated decision trees with maybe, you know, some APIs that were integrated in there. And for the time, they were so impressive and so incredible. And now they candidly look a little lame <laughs> in comparison to chat. And we were training them with IBM Watson or Google Dialogflow. They were cutting edge for the time and how quickly they feel out of date. How quickly the like technology... Choose your own adventure. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's essentially what they were, but that's what chatbots were at the time. And so when faced with, I think, all of this possibility, what could we do? What's it going to be in five years? You know, is it going to take our jobs? Is customer service, customer success? Is it going to be the same? And I felt like I almost had to force myself to think in the, the now because it's really easy to get ahead of ourselves and think, well, what it'll be in five years. And we should, of course, think about that. But my team is working with customers right now. We are building things right now. We are trying to improve the customer experience right now. So as I started to create content, that's where I really focused my efforts because there's so many people out there right now pontificating about how this will affect our lives in the next 5, 10, 20 years. But there's less people talking about what can we do right now? What kind of sentiment analysis can we do in order to better understand what our customers need right now? What can we do from a predictive analytics perspective to pull together different data sources and make quick decisions right now? 
that technology is starting to exist, or is at least within the realm of possibility in the next sort of short term, rather than the next 5, 10, 20 years. Indeed, it's pretty exciting. Now, I have to ask this too, also, as a musician, how do you see AI affecting that kind of stuff? So I think of it in the context of my time in music licensing. And that was my role. I was a music supervisor for a music licensing agency. I placed a lot of music for bad reality. So if you watched reality television between the years of 2012 and 2015, I probably placed some music for those shows. If you were a fan of Pregnant and Dating, I probably placed <laughs> that music or anything on Bravo. Really, really have... Hardly have We have a friend who went to BravoCon, so... Yeah, exactly. Definitely wasn't a Han Zimmer kind of career for me. So when I think about licensing and IP, that is where my mind goes when we think about musicians in the world of AI. Let's even take it a step further. Writers, fiction or nonfiction, script writers. Think about the strike that happened in Los Angeles with the writer strike, with the actor strike, you know, protecting themselves against their IP. And that's really what this comes down to is ownership around intellectual property. And so if you are like Grimes, where you are saying, hey, yeah, I'm giving my consent for you to use my IP and create 600 new Grimes songs out of AI. Amazing. Totally for that. Because there is a recognition of the artist's ownership of their IP. On the flip side, I think there's a lot of beg for forgiveness, not for permission when it comes to these large language models and a lot of having to now build the structure around licensing and IP and the protection of that IP that I think you could argue they should have been more sensitive to when kind of releasing this type of technology and training this technology around IP they didn't own. What differences did you see in the adoption of AI across the world? And did you factor that into your approach across different regions? I think there is like a regionality element to things. What I often find more so than the regionality, I'm pretty sure that's a word, regionality, that <laughs> yeah, feels, it that is feels now. right, <laughs> <laughs> is like a maturity within the space and a maturity of the brand or the organization more specifically. So we have you know, customers who are in the US and they are just getting started when it comes to thinking about new technologies. And then we'll have some really large, amazing brand that we'll work with in Europe. And they are pushing the boundaries well beyond what we have for some customers in the US, where you might think that a lot of the kind of outward thinking would be happening within spaces like this. So I think it doesn't always come down to the places that you naturally think the maturity or the evolution and the use of this technology is going to be. It's coming down to brands' openness to testing and the brand's culture or the organization's culture around testing new technologies. And that's been really cool to see the diversity of approaches and the openness or the closed-offness to testing different types of technologies 
as an influencer marketing company, you know, part of a larger organization like Sprout Social, we do get asked around how are we thinking about AI? And it's interesting to see where those questions come from and the kinds of brands or agencies, organizations that are asking those questions and are putting the pressure on us to think more critically about how we're going to implement it. Yeah, I find that juxtaposition of AI and then influencer marketing so fascinating. How are you seeing AI evolving those influencer marketing strategies? So I think for sure, it will be interesting. And I can't know, and I think this is more anecdotal, but I, when we're thinking about copy being written by influencers or the aggregation and analysis of creator data and understanding that data. I think that there's so many AI tools that can be leveraged now. I just saw something that was posted the other day about how there's an AI influencer that's making $11,000 a month. Some company was like, and I do not promote this at all as an influencer marketing platform who works with creators. But I guess there was a company that got kind of frustrated or fed up with their marketing strategy and they built an AI like fake creator. And she now makes $11,000 as a creator on the platform and she's full AI. I believe in the value of human beings. I think that's a... I'm very, very bullish on the value of humans. But I think that said humans can really benefit from leveraging tools like this to scale themselves. You know, creators are business owners. The business just so happens to beat them. And as a small business, you need every tool in your tool belt to be able to scale your business. And I think AI and machine learning and these large language models are going to enable creators to apply that kind of scale. I also think, to go back to the phrase of, is AI going to steal our jobs? Do I think that this AI creator is going to replace every good creator on the market? No, I don't. But I think it's a pretty crowded market. I think what we'll probably see is quality and the use of those who are using AI to be effective at their jobs, to be really analytical and specific and drive great ROI for the brands that they work with. I think they will rise to the top. And I think others will find it a lot harder to make a living doing this job of being a creator because things like AI-generated caricatures will sort of fill that longer tail need. What do you think is going to keep those going to separate kind of like the really successful creators from maybe the ones who just kind of fall behind the AI-generated ones? Yeah. So one of the things that we know drives really good engagement, ongoing engagement, which is a metric incredibly important to brands when they're thinking about relationships with creators, is that authenticity, that authentic engagement, having a niche, being able to be a subject matter expert, relating to their audience in a way that their audience feels like they actually know who they are and they feel like a friend. I've spoken with brands I'm not one brand in particular that comes to mind who I will not mention, an audio brand. And they said, you know, the days of us 
getting a pair of headphones and posting a hot girl in a bikini are kind of gone and, and spending 20 grand to do that. No shade to a hot girl in a bikini. There are places for that, especially for a bikini brand. But those days of being able to get that kind of easy money with a lot of followers... I think that they are few and far between and the market has changed and the expectations have changed. Now brands want to build relationships with creators on the rise, with musicians, with artists, with athletes, with up-and-comers who they can be part of their story. And again, really deliver on that authenticity. I think authenticity is a word that gets thrown around a lot. But I think a lot about what we will value in the next 20, 30 years as AI changes what's possible. And we have one day shipping, right? We're able to get things so immediate, things come so quickly and cheaply to us in many ways. And I think that we will start to see an increased value on analog and the value of analog will continue. And that means homemade goods and art and something that was created IRL. And I think there'll be so much opportunity within this AI space to automate and create at large scale. But I am a continued believer that there will be a smaller space, but an even more valuable one for things that are made by human beings and things that are imperfect. And those imperfections will actually add to their value. I have a piece of art over here and another sculpture over here. And those are the things I place a lot of value. And welcome back, Rich. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my uh, internet just completely died, which is fun. Sorry about that. We were just talking about AI and influencer marketing. And I wanted to cap that off with, I just had this thought that once I started seeing AI video stuff kind of start to explode over the last year and a half or two years, I'm just so excited for the opportunity of like individual creators to make something that's on par with a Marvel movie, which I feel like is pretty close. Like I've seen some of the stuff that some of these platforms are capable of making in terms of graphics. And you're not really going to need a full studio to be able to tell like a crazy sci-fi story. Whereas normally you would have had to go out to Hollywood and like try to convince somebody to make it. Yeah, I agree. And I immediately goes back to thinking about my music background and the evolution of musicians. And musicians used to have to go into a studio and spend a bunch of money and get a producer and get studio time. And then we all got these wonderful things called laptops and garage band, and you could buy a pretty affordable microphone and put your music on SoundCloud or YouTube or just put it on Spotify yourself and self-publish. And I think what we're seeing is a similar evolution for a lot of different sectors where in a positive way, it's the democratization of access, which the internet did to a a limited capacity. And a lot of the AI and machine learning and new technologies that are coming out of that are similarly being utilized for that democratization. I think it is really an interesting argument that's happening right now, where 
folks like Sam Altman of OpenAI and a lot of the bigger players are saying, regulate me, regulate me. I made this big technology and now I'm afraid of the monster. I'm afraid of Frankenstein, <laughs> you know, the monster of Frankenstein. I'm afraid of it. So regulate me. And a lot of critics are saying, well, isn't that convenient? You're essentially pulling the ladder up behind you and gatekeeping the technology. And I see both sides. I think I can empathize with both sides. But I do hope that we find a way forward where exactly what you're saying is that the up-and-coming indie filmmaker is able to utilize these tools without perhaps needing a license that only Disney could afford because of all of the protections that we might put on AI to protect the world through the fears that might come out of it. And I think that there's a happy medium that I hope that we find that we land in. Awesome. So you wrote an article on LinkedIn looking at the five ways AI is transforming like customer experience, right? Getting back to kind of customers and stuff like that. Where did you find your research and insights for that? Was that like a specific research or more just your your history? I would say, well, it's not cited. So I didn't cite my sources. But I would say if I were to point to the resources, it's a collection of my own research, reading all about AI, being a, gosh, you don't want to see my Spotify wrapped. All it is, is podcast. <laughs> podcasts. I think my husband is not always so happy that there is a podcast always playing in the house. He's like, how are you listening to all of this? This is insane. Either an audiobook or a podcast just consistently playing. I'm a voracious reader. I consider myself lifelong student. And again, also using taking all of that information and then reflecting on my own experience and how I might be able to understand how to apply all these changes and how it would affect my team and my decision making. And also, I think I wrote that specific article, I want to say early in the summer of this year. And then later in the summer around August, Sprout Social acquired Tiger Media and I've familiarizing myself with their research that they have done, a lot of survey data as well, that they've done specifically around AI and how organizations are thinking about the customer experience within the context of AI. And I was reviewing it. And there's a lot of data points that I felt like, oh, yeah, like that makes sense. Like, it's like 96% of organizations believe that AI and machine learning is crucial to the future. And it's like, okay, that's helpful to know. And there's a few of those. But the one that really stuck out to me, I hope I don't butcher it, it is uh, 24% of organizations believe that customer success and marketing will own the sort of customer service experience. And so what that tells me is there is a depreciating amount of organizations that believe that just marketing and customer success will own this type of communication with the customer and that instead it will change over time or that it's already changing and that organizations already think that AI and machine learning will play a very large role in how we serve customers, hopefully for the better. Hopefully it's not just, you know, 
more automated phone calls where you're constantly pressing zero and just saying agent, 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 agent. That's not what I looked for. But I'm immediately thought I've been a customer of Intercom for a couple companies, big fan of their platform. And something that they recently came out with is their Fin bot. And I think pricing around AI and automation around customer service deflection is, is really challenging. But they did something I felt was incredibly smart. They are charging for every AI managed conversation that was successful. And you as the customer tell the system what you think is successful. And it is mutually beneficial because by telling their AI what was successful, you are training it to be better so that it can handle more of those conversations with less human hours. And it's beneficial for Intercom because they get paid for every single conversation. And it becomes this positive loop in which I feel good about spending that money for that conversation because it saved me money. I told you what to charge me. And I'm also benefiting from the training of that bot in the long term. And I just thought that was so smart because we live in this recurring annual revenue model and you're constantly trying to make sure that the customer understands value and feels the impact of that value. And that dynamic, I, I was like, man, whoever thought of that pricing model needs a raise. <laughs> they did a really good job. Particularly, I think at the enterprise software level, it becomes more and more integral as the economy changes, you know, as interest rates have gone up, as tech stacks have been looked at and kind of cleaned house. That's an incredibly smart and strategic way to apply pricing to an AI model. But how would you compare that technology that you're talking about with Facebook Messenger chatbots like you made like six, seven years ago? How would you compare those two? Oh, wow. Really hard comparison, but an interesting one. And I say this because I don't know how Intercom is, what they're using behind the scenes, what the cooks in the kitchen are doing. We used Google Dialogflow. We used IBM Watson a little bit, but we found Dialogflow was easier to train. And I'll actually... Before I answer your question, I'll tell a quick story that has stuck in my memory. And I remember going in for a pitch when I worked at that company where we built enterprise chatbots on Facebook Messenger. And the agency said, we have $100,000 to buy AI. Do you guys sell AI? <laughs> and I said, what do you, what do you mean? I mean, that could be so many things. <laughs> we were a little thrown. And then we ultimately ended up building a chatbot with you know one of the brands we were working with and built this very in-depth chatbot. It had many different decision trees. It looped in with an API. For the time, again, it was quite cutting edge. And then the customer asked it, it was in the testing phase, you know, UAT, and customer asked it a question that, was not in the scope and gave them the default answer. And the customer said, wait, why didn't it understand what I was asking? And 
we explain, well, because we have to tell it to know what you're asking. We have to prep it. It's not self-knowing. It's not self-learning. It's not self-healing. And I tell that story because I think that there was such a misunderstanding of where the technology was, even Watson, even Google Dialogflow, when you enabled those kind of learning models. And now the technology is finally actually at a place, but you're still an element of needing to train these models. But the training of those models has come so far. I remember actually being in Google Dialogflow and like training our bots to understand certain keywords and what the context of that would be within the context of the bot. You don't have to do that in Intercom. And you don't definitely don't have to do that on ChatGPT. Definitely not GPT-4. So it's sort of this constant evolution and constant restructuring of our expectations. And we've almost been, I think, mentally in GPT-4 for like, 15, 20 years. Like, I feel like for the last 20 years, that's what we thought of as AI, but the technology wasn't actually there yet. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so now it's met our expectations and we're like, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, wow, that's literally what I thought it would do. But I'm impressed. So to answer your answer your question, I think, drastically different, but not necessarily kind of what the customer expectation or an end user expectation has. It's always what they've wanted, always what they've expected. We just haven't been able to deliver until now. What excites you the most about AI? I think what excites me the most about AI is the unknown. And I think that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. But I have always worked at startups. I have always tried to have a career that has me quite comfortable with the uncomfortable. And the AI element, I think we still don't know what will happen and we still don't know what form it will take or how it will impact us all. And that can be both negative and positive, but it it feels like a very exciting time. It feels like we're living in something that we'll tell our kids about. And I'll tell that story of getting our first computer. I'll tell the story of having to turn off the internet or getting my first cell phone. I'll tell all those stories. And then I'll also tell the story of testing out ChatGPT for the first time. And I'm sure that there will be another story that I tell probably in the next five to 10 years that happens. That feels really cool. And I think we forget that. Yeah, it's terrifying. It feels like I'm on a roller coaster a little bit and it just like keeps going up. (laughs) And so like I'm having a good time. (laughs) But it's also a little bit terrifying about like when we go over (laughs) Yeah, the anticipation. It's the anticipation of it all. But yeah, I think what's the point of technology if not to scare us a little bit, (laughs) to to keep us on our toes and to keep us guessing? And my hope throughout all of that, and I say that with a massive caveat, which is I hope we don't 
repeat the mistakes of the internet all over again. The mistakes of social, the mistakes that we seem to keep making every time we have a new technology. And I reiterate the need to not leave people behind. I think it's really easy for people in my position to say, oh, well, you need to be a lifelong learner and student of the world and learn new technologies and develop as they come. And I think that I'm in a position of privilege to say that. And I don't think it's that easy for a lot of people in this world. And we need to do a better job of making sure that we don't leave them behind. I love that. So Bianca, where can our listeners find you? You can find me either on LinkedIn, if you send me a message and it's not trying to pitch me something, I will usually respond. (laughs) You're not trying to sell me something, I'm good about responding. If you're immediately trying to sell me something, I may ignore you. Or you can just go to my personal website, biancacar.com and check up on my blogs, see if I'm posting anything. And yeah, I'm generally pretty friendly. Again, don't try and sell me something. (laughs) I have too much software right now. Yeah, I have no more budget for you. (laughs) Can I just show you around? No. (laughs) What about these Girl Scout cookies, though? (laughs) You want to sell me Girl Scout cookies? Yeah. Those people. Yes, those people, you can get by the LinkedIn filter. If you want to sell me Girl Scout cookies, I will totally respond to your message. If you want to sell me AI enhanced Girl Scout cookies, no, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to know where I can buy the AI. (laughs) Where's the AI I can buy? (laughs) Where's the AI? Do you have AI? (laughs) Is it for sale? (laughs) Is it on this shelf or that one? All right. Well, we'll make sure that those links are included in the show notes as well. But thank you so much for joining us, Bianca. It was an absolute pleasure to have you on. Yeah, the feeling is mutual. I love these types of conversations. I feel like I get to have them not in my little bubble. I get to have them with people like-minded like yourselves who I can pontificate about these types of topics. So thank you so much for letting me do that today. That's all for today's episode of Video Voyager's Edge of AI. And if you'd like to learn how customer success and customer education leaders are using video to scale their support efforts, how AI and automation plays into their day-to-day, and what video technology your competitors are investing in, check out the newly released 2023 State of SaaS Customer Success and Product Training Videos Report. You can download it on our website at video.io. Don't forget to subscribe. Bye. Video Voyager's Edge of AI is powered by Vidiate, the number one trailblazer in the world of video AI and automation. With Vidiate, it's fast and easy to create, update, and globalize your video library with every new software release. Learn more on our website at vidiate.io. Keep up to date with technology's role in shaping the future of customer experience. Search for Video Voyagers on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to stuff. And don't forget to subscribe, leave us a review if you like us, but not if you don't, and stay tuned for more. See you next time.